0: Please, please be seated. Well, it's great to be here with you and to have the opportunity to share the word. Now, I wonder if I asked you what, in one sentence, what you think God's purpose for your life is, how would you answer? Not for your ministry, but for your life from a biblical point of view I think there's only one right answer and that is to transform you into his likeness with ever increasing glory I want to ask you to raise your hands to indicate if you got it right or not Uh, (laughs) I suspect few of you did because we don't normally think in those kind of terms. But clearly in Scripture, that's God's purpose and we know that the fulfillment of that purpose will take place when we see him because when we see him as he is, we shall be like him. And that's the fulfillment of the purpose that he is working out in our lives now. So, in our ministry as leaders, in whatever capacity you have that responsibility, is determined to a considerable extent by your likeness to Jesus. The more like him you are, the more he is able to express his life through your life. Now this, of course, is his purpose for every believer, not just for leaders. But the nearest that uh, the New Testament comes to a definition of leadership is in Hebrews 13, where it says, Remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their lives. Consider the way they live and imitate their faith. Now, the next verse you know well. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But hardly ever does anybody quote that in its context. That actually what... uh, the scripture is saying is that leaders by their lifestyle and by what they do by their faith are to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever you always get more of the meaning of scripture by putting it in its context so the more like Jesus, the more we will be able to demonstrate that he is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that's a great challenge and a great responsibility. We have a full-time Bible college as part of our ministry, and I'm always reminding the, the students that if, uh, when they preach the gospel... They encourage people, but they don't challenge them. They haven't actually preached the gospel. And if they challenge them without encouraging them, they haven't preached the gospel. But if they challenge and encourage, then they preach the gospel. Now, I want to do some simple teaching just for a few minutes on the soul and the spirit. Because only if we understand Clearly, the relationship between the two can we not only see what God wants to do in our lives in terms of transforming us into His likeness, but also how we can be much better communicators of the gospel to others? What we have to remember is that 24 7, whenever we are with anybody else, we are communicating. Whether we intend to communicate or not, we are communicating. Even when you're silent, you're communicating. Silence, actually, can be a very strong form of communication. But we communicate by our attitude. We communicate by our words. We communicate by our actions. And we're either communicating positively or negatively. Uh, You know you can walk into a room where two or three people are having a conversation and by just the attitude of the people you know whether you're welcome or whether you're not you know they're talking together and they stop talking because you're there Uh, and that in a sense communicates to you immediately I'm not welcome here I've come at the wrong time we're communicating all the time. So it's very important for us to understand that what Jesus is intending through us as his children is to communicate himself. Now, obviously, the closer we walk with him, the more we're able to communicate him. And we'll talk a little a little bit later about how we communicate. But first we need to understand this distinction between the spirit and the soul. Now, of course, according to the Scripture, you are made up of spirit, soul, and body. Uh, And the promise that God gives us is that he will sanctify us through and through. Spirit, soul, and body. Now let's talk for a moment about the soul, first of all, because we're very familiar with that. The soul is your self-life, and it consists of three main things, your, your mind or your intellect, your emotions and feelings, and your will. your body you're very familiar with but your body can't do anything without the consent of the soul the way you think the way you feel the decisions you make will determine what you do with your body so your soul is really your self life you wouldn't exist if you didn't have a soul But Jesus says some interesting things about the soul. He says you've got to lose it. That uh, in order to follow him, you've got to lose your soul. He who seeks to save his soul will lose it, but he who loses his soul for my sake will find it. So we've got to Determine well, what does this mean to lose my soul? At the same time, Jesus talks about denying ourselves. So that's denying the soul life. So somehow we've got to lose the soul life by denying the soul life because we can't follow him unless we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. Now, everything that goes on in the world around us is aimed at making you feel better in a soulish way. Everything, absolutely everything, the whole advertising uh, strategy is aimed at making you feel better in your soul life, which is diametrically the opposite to what Jesus is saying. He knows that the only way to have true fulfillment and satisfaction at the level of the soul is to live in the spirit, not to live in soulishness. So let's consider for a moment what God has done for us in the spirit. Now, your spirit is the deepest, innermost part of your being. Your spirit is that part of you with which you communicate with God and God with you. He doesn't communicate to your soul. He doesn't communicate to your body. He communicates to your spirit because God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, if we looked at the whole sort of panorama of of the truth of what God has done for us, try to just put it into a few sentences. We would say this, that as a Christian, I have been born again of the Spirit. Now that means that before that event, I was spiritually dead. I had a spirit, but it wasn't alive. I was spiritually dead. So my spirit could not make any impact on my soul on my self-life. It was, to all intents and purposes, lifeless. So, uh, God brought me alive spiritually by putting his spirit into my spirit, not into my soul. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit because my body incorporates my spirit. So according to the scripture, I am now spiritually alive and Christ himself is in me. Paul says the secret is this, the secret of the Christian life is this, Christ in you. But he's not in my soul, he's not in my body physically, but he is in my spirit. So the scripture says that I have come, not I will come, but I have come to fullness of life in Christ. Because if Christ is in me, I am in Christ. And if I am in Christ and Christ is in me, then I have the fullness of his life. I have everything that he is and has without exception. I don't have part of Christ. I don't have facets of the life of Christ. I have Christ himself. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I'm making this personal, but of course I'm talking about every believer, not just about myself. So I have the fullness of life. I have Christ in me. I have the life of his Spirit. He has blessed me in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Not he will in the future, but he has already. I am already blessed with everything that heaven has to give in my spirit. If I believe what is written in the book of Hebrews, then I have already been made perfect forever in my spirit. Sadly, that's not yet true of my soul, nor of my body, but the scripture clearly affirms that as a believer, I have been made perfect forever. Hebrews 10. So God has done a full, thorough, and total work for me spiritually. All that has been accomplished already. So the scripture affirms that I lack nothing good. It's all possible, of course, because of what Jesus did on the cross. The fact that he not only died for me, but he took me to the cross so that I have been crucified with Christ. That old person... uh, whose spirit was dead, has died, has been buried with Christ, which is what my water baptism signified, that I am dead and lay buried with Christ, so that now I am a new creation in Christ, Christ in me, blessed, made perfect, having the fullness of his life, lacking nothing good. So it's a wonderful gospel. Sadly, very few church-going people believe that. Very, very few Christians live with the revelation of that. Now, if God is going to transform us, or if his purpose is to transform us into his likeness, somehow what we have in the spirit has got to be transferred into the soul. So I've got to, my soul has got to die in the sense of living my life for myself. If I live my life for myself, then I'm counteracting the whole purpose of God in actually wanting the life of Christ that he's put in my spirit to be reflected then in my soul and so in my body and then flow out of me as rivers of living water or water, as you would say. <laughs> You'll get used to my English accent as I'm getting used to your American accent. There's a, there's a myth, you know, that Americans know how to speak English. <laughs> but <laughs> You're getting the genuine article this morning. <laughs> uh, so we have this wonderful calling to let the Christ who lives in us be expressed through us. Now, what does that mean? Well, if my soul consists of my mind, my emotions, and my will, that can only take place if my mind is submitted to the Spirit. Now, This is the beginning of the problems. Because in my spirit, I have the mind of Christ. But in my soul, I have my natural mind. Now, the big mistake that many Christians make is to think, therefore, because they have the mind of Christ, whenever they're praying, every thought that they have comes from God. Which is clearly not right because the devil is more active when you're praying than at any other time in your life, because you're at your most dangerous when you're praying. So, so uh, he is certainly going to try to distract you from the truth, especially when you're praying. So uh, everything that we hear has to be tested, tested by the Word of God. We have the mind of Christ expressed for us in the words of Scripture which is why it's so important for us to test everything that we hear by the Word of God. So, my mind, my natural mind, has to be submitted and to stay submitted to the mind of Christ. This is not simply making a statement or even an act of saying, I submit my mind to the mind of Christ. Easy to say that, isn't it? But actually, my mind has to stay in submission to the mind of Christ. You see, if you just watch my hands for a moment, if if this hand is the soul and this hand is the spirit, I've got to keep my soul life under the spirit. So that means my thinking has to be submitted all the time to the Spirit, so the Spirit can inform my mind. The same with my emotions and with my will. My will has to be submitted to the Spirit at all times. Now, if that doesn't happen, this happens. My soul is dominating the Spirit and is therefore grieving the Spirit and gives you what the Scripture calls a crushed spirit. So it's not clever, really, to live with a crushed spirit. So we have to keep that soul life, keep denying. Every day, Jesus says, you keep denying yourself, you lose your soul, so that the life of the spirit can impact that self-life, that soul life, in the way that God intends. So my mind has to be submitted and to stay submitted. You can only stay submitted to him if it stays submitted to the word of God because you can't separate God from his word just like you can't separate me from my words or you from the words you speak. They're your words. They tell something about you and how you think and what you believe and so on. So we can't separate God from his words. They are the words of God. So we stay submitted, not legalistically, but this has to be an act of love. If there isn't love for God, then we won't stay submitted to him. And, of course, that love is only a response to his love. He first loved us. We only love because he first loved us. But we'll come on to all that a bit later. Are you all with me so far? Okay. So we stay with the mind submitted. Now, your emotions are really the victim of your thinking. The way you think will determine the way you feel. So if your mind stays submitted, your emotions will also be under the impact and influence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, your emotions won't control your life and won't control your decisions as they probably did before you came alive spiritually. Uh, And, you know, most people's lives are conditioned by what they have experienced emotionally. But, of course, as we submit our minds and our emotions to God, then his thinking informs our thinking and therefore changes the way that we not only think and and act and the decisions we make, but it changes the way we react and that's often where the problems come in, isn't it? It's all right if we've got time to determine what we should do, but it's when things happen suddenly and we have to react that we see whether we're going to react in the spirit or react in the soulishness. And sometimes we react in the soulishness first and then have to repent because we realize we should have acted in a totally different way. Uh, let me give you an example, so that you know what I'm talking about if someone does something to really grieve you, you are either going to react in the spirit and forgive them immediately, or you're going to react in the soulishness, you're going to get angry, you're going to be resentful, you're going to feel bitter, you're you're going to go and talk to someone else about it because you haven't forgiven. That puts you in a real bad situation because if you haven't forgiven, then God won't forgive you, according to Jesus. So just reacting in a soulish manner to negative things that happen to us put us in a very bad position in relation to God, spiritually. And we have to sort that out in order then to react in the right way. This is why Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, you must forgive. Whenever you pray, there's always going to be somebody else to forgive. Because we live in that kind of a world. And sadly, often the ones we need to forgive are other Christians. Hello? (laughs) Sometimes we need to do more forgiveness of other believers than we do of people in the world. Uh, But it's you see, it's having the spiritual life where our immediate reaction is to forgive rather than to resent. Are we there? So, we have this mind of Christ. He wants that to inform the thinking in our soul so that our emotions are under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul actually talks uh, in, in Romans about the control of the Holy Spirit. You know, we are rightly very suspicious of controlling people. And we certainly don't want to be controlled by any demonic powers. But it is right to be controlled by the Spirit, to be so submitted to the Spirit of God that He is in control of the way we act, and react, no matter what is happening. So, it's a good prayer to say, Holy Spirit, control me. You know, I submit myself to your control. I want you to be the controlling influence, the controlling factor, the controlling element in my life, so that I not only act, but react in the right way, according to... To the spirit. Now let's talk about our wills. Because the mind will affect the emotions but then most people in the world make the decisions according to the way they feel. So the mind, the emotions and the will are all interrelated in in a very close way. Now Jesus, of course, in his humanity, he had a soul life as well as a spiritual life. So let's see how Jesus handled this whole situation of keeping his soul in submission to the Spirit. It's very interesting that when he was first filled with the Spirit, the first thing the Spirit did was to lead him into the wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. Now, why should God do that? Because the Spirit led him. This was a test that Jesus passed, but sadly, many ministers of the gospel these days fail. Because the, the test that Jesus was being put to was simply, are you going to use the anointing that has come upon you for yourself or for the purposes of God? So you see, the first temptation was, you are hungry, you've been fasting 40 days, 40 nights, turn these stones into bread. Use the anointing for yourself. Jesus says, no way. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, the next temptation is, do something spectacular, so that everybody will acclaim you. Jump from the pinnacle of the temple. But Jesus says, no way. I haven't really come to draw attention to myself, but to reveal the Father. And then, of course, he was offered power, which the devil didn't have to give him, but, you know, use the anointing to gain power for yourself. And again, of course, Jesus refuses. Now, this is, this uh, event is therefore going to mark the rest of his life. And for me, the most wonderful book in the whole Bible is the Gospel of John. Because John... Was closer to Jesus than anybody else in his humanity, understood Jesus better than anybody else. And it's very clear that uh, Jesus communicated to John certain truths that he didn't communicate to anybody else. Uh, Things that, uh, you know, spiritual things about himself, about his relationship with the Father. So we have all this wonderful information in John's Gospel about how the Father and the Son related during the days of his humanity. In other words, how Jesus coped with having a soul and the spirit and keeping his soul life in submission to the spirit. So what does he say? He says, I speak no words of my own. Now wait a minute, this is the word of God that was made flesh and came to live amongst us. So you would think, well, if anybody had the right to speak any words of his own, it was Jesus. But Jesus says, I speak no words of my own. I never speak without being in submission to the Spirit. Then he says, I can do nothing myself. Myself, of course, in my soul life, my self life, I can do nothing. Now, this is Jesus speaking. And he says it more than once. We think of the miracles of Jesus, but Jesus didn't perceive those events as his miracles, but they were the miracles of the Father that he was working through the Son. Are you breathing still? Okay. So he says, I can't do anything. Now, how many leaders strive in a soulish way to accomplish, to build church, to do this, to do that? Instead of saying, I can't do anything. I do, Jesus says, only what I see my Father doing. See, this is complete submission. This is wholehearted surrender. This is yielding himself to the control of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus said, I haven't come to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, that that was the way Jesus lived. It wasn't just a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said long, long before that, I haven't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, you see, if we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, we are coming to the point where increasingly in our lives, our minds are submitted to his thinking. Therefore, that will condition the way we feel and the way we act and react in certain circumstances. But it's also going to affect every decision that we make. Because our whole attitude is, I'm not living for my will or for the American dream. I'm living for God, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm seeking the kingdom, not just a good lifestyle here on earth. Amen. That's difficult in this area. Everywhere I look, I see a bit easier where I come from. But anyway... (laughs) (laughs) but it's attitude isn't it you know Jesus again and again and again says that he did not choose to come he was sent I've never counted up how many times he says it but it's many times Uh, so he has come to do the will of him who sent him So everything in Jesus' humanity is in submission to, is in surrender to his Father. So he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He could say, the Father and I are one. And yet, you see, because he had to stay in submission to the Father during the days of his humanity... He could also say, but the Father is greater than I in his humanity. Therefore, he has to keep his humanity in submission to the Father. Are we getting all this? Okay, now, Jesus did it perfectly. He lived in that perfect submission of soul to spirit, of, if you like, losing his soul so that the life of the Spirit could be perfectly expressed in his life. So what we see in Jesus is that perfection of the Spirit uh, that when he prayed, what he prayed for happened. Uh, Nothing was impossible for him. But then he also says All things are possible for he who believes in me. So he was demonstrating a lifestyle to the disciples. But the disciples were to have the same lifestyle. Now we need to understand what a disciple is in Scripture. A disciple is not someone who follows the teaching of a master. But a disciple is someone who wants to be like his master. This was true not only of disciples of Jesus, but all the disciples of the other rabbis of the time. So when two of John the Baptist's disciples saw Jesus and, and decided to leave John and follow Jesus, you remember the first thing that they said to Jesus, or asked him, they said, Master, where are you staying? Uh, they had already heard his preaching. But they said, Where are you staying? And the scripture says they went and spent the rest of the day with him. Why? Because to be a disciple, you want to be with your master. You want to become like your master. You will eat with him. You will follow him. You will do everything with him. So the disciples left everything and followed him. They left their homes. They left their livelihoods. They left everything. Because that's what discipleship is. It's wanting to be like your master. Uh, I often, when I'm praising God, call Jesus my master. Because he is. If he's my Lord, he's my master. God's my Father who loves me, but he's also my master. And I want to be in that place of willing submission to him as my Lord and my master so that he can have his way in my life. Sadly, not as perfectly as Jesus, but we're all on this journey where we're becoming more and more like him. Hallelujah. So, my will will always be my will. So Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, he knew the Father would never interfere with his will. He always had to choose to submit his will to the will of the Father. It was always a matter of choice. God was never going to force his will upon him and, and Wouldn't wouldn't it be easier if we could live the Christian life without sin? If there was no temptation? If we had no desire to please ourselves? It would be so much easier, wouldn't it? But the whole genius of the Christian life is that I have a will of my own and God is never going to interfere with that. He's never going to force me to do anything it's got to be out of the submission of my will to his will. Now we come to the crux of the whole business. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Just as I have loved the Father, and obey his commands. Interesting, isn't it? You know, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's an amazing statement. But it poses an interesting question. How did the Father... Love Jesus. Now, actually, in John ten seventeen, he gives us the answer. Jesus said, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. Now, you probably know in Greek, you translate the same Greek word as life or soul. the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my soul. I deny myself. And then he says to these disciples, you know, a new commandment I'm giving you, you are to love one another as I have loved you. And he's saying, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, remain in my love. Now, that's a command. Remain in my love. And then he says, you will remain in my love if you obey my commands, just as I remained in the Father's love because I obeyed his commands. Now, this is amazing because it shows there was nothing automatic about Jesus obeying the Father, loving the Father. It had to be the act of his will all the way through his life. To me, the most amazing thing uh, about Jesus is that he lived for 30 years on this earth without performing a miracle, without preaching, without healing or delivering anyone. But in total obedience to the Father, he waited for the Father's timing. And you remember when he went and was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, when he came up out of the water, he was praying, the Spirit of God came upon him, and the voice was heard from heaven, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now why should God be well pleased with him? He hadn't done anything yet. And that was the whole point. He had refused to try to fulfill his ministry with his soul. He was waiting for the anointing of the Spirit. You remember what he said to the disciples when he put them in the risen body? Don't you dare go out and preach and teach and that, I'm a, uh, that I've risen or do anything until first you receive the power from on high. You're not to go out in soulish enthusiasm. You're to go out in the power of my Spirit. Are we all at the same meeting? Okay. So, if this is how Jesus functions, this is, shows us how God intends us to function. Now, we might not be there yet. We might be on our way towards that point, but at least we know what we're aiming at. You see, when you do something with the soul, and, and you you know, I mean, you... You're familiar with church life, and you know what people are like. Much like you, really, but uh, you, you know what people are like. That so many people, even when they do stuff, they want to be recognized. They want to be thanked. They want to be acclaimed in some way. See? That's all soul. It's all rubbish. It's all absolute nonsense, and there's no reward for anything that's done without that spirit. because actually the motive behind all such action has been the soul, not the spirit. Hello? Look at me, recognize me, acknowledge me, see what a great thing I've done, see how I've blessed, see how I've loved, see how I've served. Now, I think it's great to honor people, you know, but not because they want to honor themselves. In in our church, we have what we call the hero of the month, someone in the congregation that we honor for the way in which they've served and, and have been a blessing to other people. And on every occasion I've ever seen the hero of the month acknowledged, they're always surprised. And it's difficult for them even to come to the platform to receive their little award because they haven't done it for soulish reasons, whatever they've done, however they've served. But they've done it for the glory of God. You'll always find that in the church, the people that want position are the people never to give position to. Because if they want position, they're being driven by the soul, not by the spirit. Because what does Jesus say? He raises up the humble. And we have to prove faithful in little things before we put in charge of bigger things. So, you know, there's a difference between those who want to be raised up and those whom God chooses to raise up. Are we there? You know, I used to speak... uh, Uh, in a lot of big international conferences where most of the other speakers were American and they found it very, very difficult to understand that God could actually raise up someone who was British. (laughs) I'm being serious, I'm being serious. They really found it. Who is this guy from England? What is God doing? (laughs) It, It was an attitude, it was there. I mean, I was conscious of it all the time. And some very big names where the people had this kind of attitude, names that you would know but I'm not going to mention. So <clears throat> you know, God, God likes to raise up the little people, <laughs> so long as the little people are trusting in him, mm-hmm. because we're not after fame and acclaim, we're just after being more and more like Jesus. And, you know, he talked about the greatest and the least in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure we'd all agree that Jesus is the greatest in heaven now, yeah? Reigning, waiting for all his enemies to put under his feet. But what did he say about himself when he was on earth? I have not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life, to give my soul as a ransom for many. Gives his soul to save souls. Are we there? So, uh, you know, the greatest in the kingdom, uh, even in our churches, are are going to be the greatest servants, not necessarily those in the greatest positions. Of course, the, the key is really to serve the Lord faithfully so that he keeps raising you up and giving you more and more responsibility because he can trust you rather than seeking position and acclaim for yourself. Now, we've uh, we've come to this key point because Jesus is saying, well, you will obey me if you love me. Every sin is a failure to love God. When we sin, we have chosen self above God. Uh, Praise God for his mercy and that his mercies are new every morning because we sure need them every morning. (laughs) Uh, And that he doesn't condemn us and judge us when we do sin and when we do fail him. But obviously, our desire is to please him, not to fail him. And if our desire is to please him, then uh, our joy, if you like, our our intention is to express our love for him by doing what he wants us to do. Now here, words are insufficient, aren't they? You know, we we can praise the Lord... Say, I love you, Lord. And be totally sincere. Don't doubt our sincerity when we say things like that in worship. I really love you, Lord. But how do you think he responds to that? Perhaps his response is, well, I'll believe you when I see you doing what I say. Because if you do love me, then you will obey my commands. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't say to the Lord, I love you, but I think we've got to be careful because John says in his first letter, let us not love with words or speech. He doesn't say let us not only love. But he says, let us not love with words, but in deed and in truth. Let us love by what we do, not by what we say. You know, I teach our our, our students that uh, you can say to your fellow believer, I love you. And be sincere. You're really sincere. You know, you feel something for your brother or sister in Christ. I said, I've learned never to say that to anyone unless I'm ready to back it up with my life. Because uh, Jesus says we're to love one another as he has loved us, and he backed up that love with his life. Uh, And if He so loved us, then we are to love one another And and Jesus says, there's no greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. So if I was to say to you, I love you, it means, right, I'm backing those words up with my life now. You can call upon me at any time, in any way, for whatever purpose, because I'm committed to you in love. Now this is the kind of covenant love that God expects to see in his church. Hello? Hello? Um, So John also says in his first letter, if your brother has need and you close up your heart against the need of your brother, how can the love of God be in you? Because this love isn't words, it's practical. The agape love is giving. It's giving. love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So if you have this world's goods and you close up your heart against the needs of the brother, how can the love of God be in you? Because this love is so practical. Now, of course, in most churches, people don't know each other's needs. and They don't want to because then you don't have to do anything about it. <laughs> but the only thing is, you see, you can't love in that case. I'm not talking about you know people sponging, people living off the gifts of others. I'm talking about need. If your brother, or the scripture is, if your brother has need and you have this world's goods and you close up your heart against the need of your brother, saying, it's nothing to do with me, how can the love of God be in you? Why? Because that love, the love of God in you, is giving, giving, giving. Just like Jesus, He just lived to give. As a famous believer who said, that God eternally lives to give Himself. So, you know, if we're going to become more and more like Jesus, we're going to become more and more generous in our giving not just financially, but in the giving of ourselves. To love, to serve, to bless, to encourage, to build up, to help. Doing everything that is positive for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, of course, our ability to love in that way has to... Come out of our knowledge of God's love for us. We only love because He first loved us. So when people I'm talking relatively now, when when people relatively speaking, you know, are not very generous in the giving of themselves to others. It's because they don't really have the revelation of how great God's love for them is. So it's not a question of saying to, to people, you ought to love in this way, you ought to give in this way, you ought to serve in this way, because that easily becomes legalistic, doesn't it? Uh, but it's bringing people to a greater revelation of God's love for them because the greater the revelation of his love they have means that they will come to the point where they can't help themselves, they can't stop giving, loving, serving, blessing. I mean, it just becomes their way of life, Uh, the very meaning of their existence. They live to love, they live to bless, they live to give, they live to serve it becomes the sort of believer's DNA. And all that comes out of this amazing revelation of God's love for us, individually, personally. Now, there can be so many different reasons why different people struggle with truly believing how much God loves them. Uh, You see it when people have need, you know, they need healing. Amazing how many people think, what have I done to deserve this? They don't immediately think, God loves me so much, he doesn't want this for my life. Well, they they look at themselves and they begin to examine themselves and they begin to look for cause in themselves. And whenever we do that, we're defeating ourselves, actually. Uh, that no matter what need arises in our lives, the need always should cause us to focus on him, on Jesus, on his love, on what he has done. And this is the whole point, you see. Let's go back to the spirit and soul again. In the spirit, he has loved me. Now, there's no time to take you through a load of scriptures to to verify this, but you'll see it for yourself once I point it out. You'll find again and again in scripture, God does not say, I love you, but he says, I have loved you. It's put in the historic tense. I have loved you. Um, and that's because he has loved us in Christ. You know, I, people, people somehow seem to think if they have a need, God has got to do something to meet their need. Now, of course, he doesn't. If you, if you believe the scripture, God's got no, Jesus has got nothing left to do. He is now seated in heaven, right? Because he's accomplished everything that he was sent to do. It is done. It is finished. It is accomplished. He cried out on the cross, right? And it says, now he sits waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. So, he has loved us. He has healed us. He has filled us. He has, he has, he has, he has. Everything is what he has done. So, if over here, I have a healing need, and I'm saying, please, Lord, heal me, or if I'm saying, I believe God will heal me, I'm not believing what he has done. You see, I've lost count of a number of people who have told me, you know, when they were praying with someone, I really believe that God was going to heal him. And they say, you know, I really believe God will heal me, or I really believe God will heal X, and then they die. And I say, my faith was shattered. Now, you've got to be careful how you do this in a situation like that. But what you delicately need to point out to people is you were never in a place of faith. Because if you say God will do something, it's always in the future. It's never in the present. Faith is in the present, never in the future. That's hope. So if I say God will heal me, I'm still not in a place of faith. But if I believe God has healed me, And because he has healed me, I can lay hold now by faith of what he has done. Then I can receive now what he has already accomplished. My healing is not in the future. My healing is always in the past. See? My anointing is in the past because when he gave me the Holy Spirit, he gave me everything. I don't need more anointing. I just need to live more fully in the anointing he has given So John reminds his readers, you know, you have the anointing of the Holy One and that anointing remains. God has never taken your anointing away. You might not have lived in it, you might not have used it, you might not have fully utilized what God has given you, but he has still given it to you, he doesn't take it. God does not lend you the Holy Spirit, he gives you the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But some people, you know, the way they talk, it's as if, Uh, they no longer have what God once gave them. Well, who took it away? God didn't take away what he's given. It's just that that person has not necessarily lived in what was given. So we're, we're in this situation where to be transformed into his likeness is actually going to depend upon me coming to a greater and greater and greater revelation of God's love for me. Right now, this is where we come to prayer. Because the the biggest, perhaps, difficulty in in the whole of, of, of God's church is the deception that people live in because they know about God rather than know God. They believe about his love without knowing his love. You see, if I'm going to meet with God, if I'm going to encounter God, I'm going to encounter the one who is love. Now, if I encounter the one who is love. I, I, I first encountered him when I was, I, I don't know, about nine or ten, something like that. I can stand before you today and honestly tell you that from the first day I encountered him, I have never, even for a fraction of a second, questioned his love for me. No matter what has happened, no matter how much opposition, no matter how much rejection and whatever I've had to work through and suffer, Never, ever could I doubt God's love for me because I met him in his love. And you see, he is love. He's not just love on a good day. He's not just love when everything is going right in your life. He's not just love when you're obeying him. He's love all the time. The more I encounter him, the more I know his love. And therefore, in a sense, it doesn't matter what others do to me. It doesn't matter what the world does. It doesn't matter what difficulties or circumstances I have to work through. Nothing in the whole of creation can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing can even cause me to question that love. Nothing. Others, even other believers, may do all kinds of things. You'd you'd be surprised how much opposition, rejection, persecution... I've had to suffer over the years because the more God uses a person, the more opposition they get. The sad thing is the opposition often comes from within the body of Christ more than from outside the body of Christ but you see what what you see in those who oppose you there is a lack of that revelation of God's love if they had that revelation of love they wouldn't do to you what they do they wouldn't say what they say they wouldn't have the attitudes that they have Are you with me? So Paul says the only thing that matters, the only thing that counts, is faith working through love. The love of God is just so powerful. And what we're doing, those of us that are in ministry all the time, is leading people to a greater and greater revelation of the love of God. Now, of course, that's open to abuse, you know. It's open to people having a total misconception of what that is, of just having nice woozy feelings in worship times, instead of the love that I've been talking about, the love that leads to obedience, the love that leads to giving, the love that leads to serving. But the greater the revelation you have of the love of God, the greater servant you will be. the greater the revelation of his love the easier it is to submit to that love and therefore to submit to his will not my will but yours be done so if we're being transformed into his likeness we' are being transformed in love. We're being transformed by love, that that love gets a greater and greater grip and hold of our lives. And you see, when you love, John says, his commands. Are not a burden. You think of a a mother whose child is dangerously ill in hospital. That mother will sit by the bedside. Will mop the brow. Will clean up the vomit. Will do whatever. You'll say to her, Mum, you need to go and have some rest. No, I'm going to stay here. Why? Because she loves. It may be costly, but she doesn't think of the cost. The love is more important than the cost. Now that's just love in the natural. Any mother would do that, Christian or not. But what a good example to us of what it means to love in the Spirit. That uh, His commands, if we love Him, because we know how much he loves us his commands are not a burden it doesn't mean we'll always want to obey but it does mean that we will choose to obey and when we do even those things that we thought were going to be a burden usually turn out not to be a burden because of the grace that God releases into our lives to enable us to do what it is he wanted us to do. So, we've sort of covered a, a whole lot of ground, really, because I wanted to give you a kind of overview this morning, but the most precious time of your day is your prayer time you know I always say any minister of the gospel is only as good as his prayer life because how do you how do you keep in that place of love well only by giving yourself to him of my prayer life is spent just listening to Him. Uh, I probably spend, on average, about an hour a day just listening to the Lord, writing down what He's saying to me. Because it just seems to me more important for me to listen to Him than Him to listen to me. The scripture says He knows my thoughts from afar and He knows my words, so what have I got to tell Him, really? Uh, He knows it anyway. But I want to, I, I want to hear from him. And you see, he is such an encourager. So you know, Aaron says to me yesterday something about you know what am I going to be talking about today? Well, I didn't have a clue yesterday, but this morning when I got up early and just spent time with Jesus, I knew what he wanted me to share with you today. So. Uh, it's just keeping in that place with him, isn't it? Uh, how can how can we say that we love him if we don't spend time with him? Uh, you know, my my wife and I were celebrating fifty years of marriage this year, so we got our long service certificate, but uh, <laughs> but <the laughs> But you know we spend time together because we love each other. Not because we ought to spend time because we're husband and wife. You understand what I'm saying? And you know I spend I'm not suggesting that you do this but I spend a lot of my time praying in the middle of the night. I sort of get up and just spend time with the Lord because you know you mind isn't cluttered with other things then but it started that started for me many years ago when I would wake up in the middle of the night I'd be really wide awake just in an instant and God would just say to me I'm waiting for you and I'd be downstairs like a shot you know? the point is God is always waiting for you you, should. you have an appointment with him every day And usually he claims the first part of the day is he's your first love. And uh, if you don't show up, his attitude is, I've missed you. Where were you? I wanted that time of fellowship with you. Back in the 1970s when I was a pastor, we had a wonderful revival in in my church in England. It was the most amazing time. If you think you're busy, wait till revival comes, and you'll be really busy, because you're you're racing to keep up with what God is doing. And uh, at that time, you know, my uh, we lived next door to the church building. The church building was open all day, because people were using it all day, in revival they do. And uh, so my my last Job of the day was to take the dog for a walk and uh, go and make sure the church was empty and just lock it up for the evening. And this particular, and, and it was always my habit just to spend a few minutes with the Lord, you know, thanking him for the day and so on. Uh, and on this particular night, I was really bushed. I was just so so tired uh, and. I just put my head around the door to make sure that there was nobody there before I locked up in, in the this, in this sanctuary. And I just said, Lord, you know how tired I am. Uh, I, I'm sure you don't mind if I just go to bed tonight. And as clear as anything, the Spirit of God said to me, shut the door, come in and sit down. <laughs> so I dutifully went and sat in one of the seats and my dog it's a very holy dog, spiritual dog he lay down <laughs> to say his prayers and uh, God said to me if you don't spend these few minutes with me I will miss you and you know when God says something like that you feel about that big and you think how could God miss me And he says, well, I love you. If I love you, I value you. And if I value you, I value my fellowship with you. I value the time you spend with me. You don't spend that time with me for your sake. You spend that time with me for my sake. Because you're responding to my love for you. And you know, if you appreciate that, you don't need anybody to motivate you to pray, do you? And to understand that when we pray, the thing that God wants more than anything else is to speak to us. Nothing is worse than a one-sided conversation, is it? And yeah, God is speaking to me most of my prayer time, but I'm responding in my heart all the time to what he's saying because you can't do anything other than respond can you? You either respond in the right way or the wrong way but you have to respond to what he says so the only way you really get to know how much he loves you is in that relationship of prayer But I'm not talking about saying prayers. I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about a love relationship with the Lord, with your Father who loves you, with Jesus who died for you, and with the Holy Spirit who's given himself to you. What a God. So perhaps we can just take a pause for five minutes or so, and then we can come ask any questions. I, I think the best, the best thing is to take the, what Jesus teaches in Mark 11, what is usually called the prayer of faith. And there you see in verse 22, the first thing he says is um, have faith in God. Now, that might seem a bit obvious, but it's far from obvious because most people have their faith in the need because uh, your faith is expressed in what you speak about. So people that speak endlessly about their need, their faith is in the need. Their faith is more in the sickness than in the one who can heal the sickness if you're talking about healing. So we have faith in God and that really begins with what I was talking about earlier about therefore we have faith in the love of God and knowing that in his love uh, he wants to, to give to his children, that in all things he will work for good in our lives. And if you're thinking about healing, you know it says in Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him and by his stripes we're healed. Now, many Christians keep quoting the by his stripes we're healed, but there's an and there. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him and by his stripes we're healed. The healing is related to the peace And very often what we need to do when we're ministering to others is to bring them to a place of peace. Now, the peace of God, uh, what the word actually means is uh, a total sense of well-being. You know, when uh, even the Hebrew greeting, shalom, that's what it means. The well-being of God be with you. It's not just peace, you know, like a dove but it's saying the the total well-being of God be with you. Uh, And so the punishment that made it possible for us to have the total well-being of God was laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So that's all in the past. So Jesus says, have faith in God. Then he says, you are to speak to the need. Now the reason why so many Christians get stuck with the need is they don't speak to the need, they speak about the need, they complain about the need, they even speak to Jesus about the need, but they don't speak to the need and command it to move. Which is the very thing Jesus tells you to do. Uh, <laughs> you get me on this and I'm likely to preach all the sermon on it. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, you see, uh, there's a um, very, very interesting example of this because you know the principles of faith operate in Old Testament as well as New Testament, and uh, I wonder if you know who who is referred to here. It says uh, there was, n- there has never been a day like it before or since a day when the Lord listened to a man. Now, that is spoken about Joshua. And uh, what happened? Well, it says in the previous verses, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord, now listen to this, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O son Stand still over Gibeon, O moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. And you see, it says, the scripture says he spoke to the Lord, but actually he didn't speak to the Lord, he spoke to the sun. And he spoke to the moon. And he commanded. See, faith is expressed in authority. And authority is expressed in command. So Jesus says, (coughs) speak to the need and command it to be moved. And just as he listened to Joshua, he'll listen to you. And then Jesus said, uh, but when you speak, you must believe in your heart that the need will be moved. Uh, so you see, it's, before sometimes we pray with people to be healed, we should make sure that they're in a place of faith to receive the healing. Uh, are they themselves speaking to the need and commanding it to move? or are they looking to you to be some mediator between God and themselves which is not what it's about at all Uh, then Jesus says you see having spoken to the need then he says whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours so you can ask for what you have in Christ and it will be yours. You see, it's it's the, the whole thing is really Jesus saying, well, have faith in who God is, have faith in his love, have faith in what he has accomplished, speak to the need, command it to be moved, believe in your heart that it will be and then ask, for whatever it is that needs them to be released into the situation, ask for what you already have, that you have received, because you have received the fullness of life in Christ, and it will be yours. And sometimes it's yours immediately. Sometimes, the scripture says, the testing of our faith proves it's genuine. And sometimes, you know, that the... the the genuineness of our faith is tested by whether we persevere. Jesus taught a lot about perseverance in prayer. So if, as we persevere in that faith, then we persevere to the point at which the mountain is moved and we have received that which we have asked for. That's a very potted version of what could be a long teaching. <laughs> okay the secret really is understanding how the word and the spirit are to operate together in our lives the word without the spirit is lifeless and becomes legalistic the spirit without the word means people get off into all kinds of fantasy land Uh, but when the word and the spirit operate together it's the word of truth and the spirit of truth and I think 98% of genuine prophecy is the Holy Spirit reminding believers of Scripture. You know, we always look for other prophetic words, but if you, if you look at what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit uh, when he's talking to the disciples at the Last Supper, he says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all the truth. He will take the things of mine and declare them to you. He will remind you of everything that I have said. So this is the job of the Holy Spirit, to remind us of the Word of God, to bring the Word of God to us in every situation. And yes, we can have other um, prophetic words that therefore help us to explain or interpret those words into our present circumstances, but we never want words of that kind to be a substitute for the Word of God because the authority of the Word of God is so much greater. You know that you have heard from God. So, you know, we have the Logos of God. Uh, The Holy Spirit turns that into a rhema, into God speaking that word to you at that particular time. And then, you know, you know you've heard from God. But the, the thing is that if you believe the Logos, God has already spoken. So you're not all the time saying, well, you know, I can't believe unless I receive a Rhema word. No, no, no. I believe in the Logos. God can use a Rhema word to encourage my faith, to increase my faith, to ena- enable me to apply my faith in a particular situation. But actually, I'm not dependent upon a Rhema for that to happen. If I believe, that I have what God says I have, then I have it, without having a rhema word to verify that for me. Yeah, hearing God is very simple. All you've got to do is open your Bible. And immediately you're hearing from God. So most of the time, uh, the the way I do that is, is, uh, I'm reading scripture now. I may be working away through a book I may go to a passage that I believe God is referring to me to at a particular time I may take a theme um, I, I wrote a book 150 themes uh, from, from scripture which is simply biblical texts and, and under all kinds of different headings I'm working through heart at the moment so I'm just going through one scripture after another what God says about the nature of the heart and he'll speak to you through that, and I'm writing down. So for an hour or so, I'm writing all the time. I'm writing what God is saying to me. I'm not writing about it. I'm just writing down what God says to me through through the scriptures. And then, of course, you know, you, you find that he begins to speak to you about circumstances, about what you're going to be doing, like what I'm going to be doing today, and so on. Because you get into... You get into sort of tune, if you like. It's like tuning in your radio to the right frequency, and you, one, once you, you're in on the right frequency, you can go on listening to what he's saying. A um, very important thing about listening to God is never ask him a yes-no question, because you know, in one minute you'll have 16 yeses and 15 noes, and you'll be in thorough confusion. And never sit down and try to hear God answer you if you have a question or if you have a need because you'll never know whether you're listening to your own soul or to the spirit. When you have a need, lay it before God and leave it. Leave it with him. And you'll find that he will speak to you in his own good time. Uh, Usually when you're least expecting it, when you're not thinking about the particular matter that you laid before him, and then you know, that was God, I wasn't even thinking about that, and that was God giving me his answer. Um, And it's just a question of trusting, you know, when we've we've got a question, we always want an immediate answer, that God is the God of perfect timing, and he's not going to allow us to rush him or hurry him. He will always speak... At the right time and he was speaking in a way that you know that was God that certainly was not me and that's that's the important thing you know. but all, all I can say is you know the, it's, it's like everything else the more you do it the better you become at it so the more you listen the easier it is to hear the voice of God You know, I can sit down anywhere at any time and immediately I'm able to hear the voice of God and I, I praise God for that. It's wonderful, wonderful to be in a, that place with God. But and You know it's the work of his mercy and grace, but it's also the fruit of years and years and years of spending time with him and listening to him. So it becomes easier and easier and easier to, to hear what he's saying. Yeah, well, this, this, you know, I referred just now to the Persistence. You see, the widow was rewarded for her persistence, because she knew that she was asking for righteousness, for justice. And so, when we're praying about something and we know what the right answer is, then we persevere until we get the right answer. We don't. We're not going to be fobbed off with anything less than the right answer. So we persevere and we persevere and we persevere. And that is the testing of our faith. Well, do, you, do you really believe that I'm going to work this out in your life, in your experience? And of course, we, uh, some prayer is a spiritual battle. You've got all the powers of opposition that have to be overcome. And uh, often we need the perseverance to overcome whatever is coming against us. But then according to Revelation 2 and 3, all the blessings in heaven are for the overcomers. <laughs> so if we didn't have things to overcome, we couldn't become overcomers. So the thing to do is to give thanks in all circumstances, even the problem. Thank you, Lord, for the problem, because in this you're teaching me to be an overcomer. You know, the people often have questions about the sovereignty of God, and I think uh, if they're not careful... Uh, they're in danger of believing in the will of God and the sovereign will of God, as if there's two levels of the will of God. And of course there aren't. There's only one will of God, and the will of God is sovereign. So um, in, in all circumstances, God is working for our good so that the sovereign will of God Can be accomplished in our lives. Uh, We get into trouble when we start to believe and pray for something less than what to God would be the perfect answer to the situation or the dilemma that we're in. So, you know, God's sovereign will is to express in my life today what he has given me in the spirit all those things I talked about at the beginning this morning his sovereign that's his sovereign will anything less than that is less than his sovereign will for my life for your life so <clears throat> people often talk about this in relation to healing you know how can we know that it's the will of God to heal because Jesus has already healed on the cross But people don't like that. They say, well, you know, if that's true, then surely everybody will be healed. No, because we know God's sovereign will uh, that he worked out on the cross was to overcome all sin, but not everybody is forgiven. Those who ask are forgiven, but how many people out there never ask? They're not forgiven. Is it God's sovereign will for them to be forgiven? Yes. But his sovereign will can't be outworked in their life if they don't ask to be forgiven, if they don't repent of their sins. And this is the strange thing, that as Christians, you know, we're taught, well, when when you sin, you ask God to forgive you, and he will forgive you, you have absolute assurance that he will forgive you, because of what he's already done on the cross. Now, if we had that same assurance about healing, then we'd see so much more healing. Because we don't need a word to know whether it's God's sovereign will to heal or not. Now, again, if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, there will be situations when you know that healing is not going to happen and somebody is going to die. You just know that in the Spirit. Um, Now, is that God's sovereign will? Not necessarily... But what God is telling you is that's what's going to happen for whatever reasons. And therefore, in a situation like that, you know, you, you need to pray accordingly and you need to pray with wisdom rather than giving people false ideas of what's going to happen. Uh, but at, at all times, you know, we we need to be submitted to the Spirit, as I was talking about earlier, so that the Holy Spirit can guide us and we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, you think of Jesus coming down the Mount of Transfiguration. There's nine disciples trying to heal that epileptic boy and failing. And you see, well, here are the nine leading healing ministries in the world at that time, and they're all failing, you know. And Jesus comes along and heals the boy. Now, if you, if you look to what those nine was doing, people could be tempted to say, in his sovereign will, God is not going to heal that one. But then along comes Jesus and heals him. So, you see, you can't determine what God's sovereign will is simply by events. Because, sadly, not every event is God's sovereign will. Right, well, first of all, what we need to appreciate is that God is speaking to all of us all the time. Uh, It's just that occasionally we tune in and listen. Uh, But this is why uh, the Scripture says you can all prophesy. So any believer is able to prophesy because any believer is able to hear what God is saying. Uh, And most of the time... Uh, when when we do tune in, of course, God is speaking directly into the circumstances of our lives. He's saying what we need to hear at that particular time. Uh, Sometimes, yeah, we do have prophetic words that we can't understand or dreams, prophetic dreams. Uh, What we do scripturally with those is to store them up. If you don't understand them now, store them up because at some point in the future they will become meaningful and the Holy Spirit will refer back. Sometimes he, what he, God does over a period of time is he speaks to us about something. He, it's like an unfolding revelation and we get more and more and more. But we don't get the last part that makes sense of the whole thing until we're ready for it. But it's as if God is saying, I'm preparing you for something, or for something new, or whatever it may be. And and this is the thing that we need to appreciate, that um, even, even when we do understand what God is saying, it's important that we don't try to put those prophetic words into effect in our own strength right yeah the most the most difficult thing i think about the will of god is getting the timing right it's much easier to know what to do it's much more difficult to do it in the right way and at the right time and so You know, if you don't know what to do with something, just hold on to it. Like Mary, you know, when she received the revelation, she just held on to the things that were all these prophecies over Jesus. She couldn't understand how they were all going to work out, but she held on to them. She stored them up. Uh, And of course, she would eventually see how they were going to be fulfilled. So, you know, God is doing what you're talking about he's doing that to me all the time he's speaking about something you know that he's going to do and if he's going to do it you know that it's not in the present but what he's doing is preparing you for that so that at the right time it becomes the present will of God and he's good at preparing us because he doesn't want he doesn't want us to try to do things before we're ready. Well, <clears throat> we know that between the time when Jesus died on the cross and his resurrection, he went to to preach to what was really like the kind of holding place, you know, all these great... Um, saints of the Old Testament were there that nobody could have ascended to heaven until after the cross so uh, they were in this place um, until, they, until Jesus came now <coughs> uh, it would be true also that uh, the thief on the cross could not ascend to heaven ahead of Jesus but he could be in paradise along with those others that Jesus went to rescue. And then when Jesus returned to heaven, he he went at the head of a whole procession of those who were raised with him, Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David and Joshua and all the rest of them and the thief of the cross. Yes, as far as we can understand it. I mean, he, you know, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, and there was this gulf between them. they couldn't get across. A but, <coughs> um, yes, I mean, as much as anybody understands any of these things. <laughs> uh, I, you know, the, the, best, uh, the best talk I ever heard somebody give on Revelation he said, if, "If anybody tells you what the Book of Revelation means, don't believe a word he says because nobody understands it." And I thought, hallelujah! Somebody's somebody's dared to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, God has been speaking to us a, a, about this need of a new reformation. We don't use, and he said, "Don't use the word revival because revival is a much." abused and misunderstood word you know people think you get a little whiff of the Holy Spirit and you've got revival or you see a few signs and wonders and you've got revival and of course revival isn't about that at all it's um, been my privilege to experience revivals be in revivals to preach in real genuine revivals that exist in different parts of the world and in the last generation a lot of what has been called revival I don't really think is revival they've been moved to the Holy Spirit and praise God for every move of the Holy Spirit but what is needed is something that you know rev- revival changes the world it doesn't just change the church if it's true revival so the Lord said well talk about reformation because what is needed at this time is what happened in the time of the first reformation and that is bringing people back to the word of God back to faith in the Word. And the church, sadly, in the last 30, 40 years, after a move of the Spirit, that move sort of declined. And at the same time, hunger for the Word of God declined. because where the Spirit is. He creates that hunger. And so churches, many churches, have got further and further and further away from the Word of God and they become more experience-based, and just getting people to have nice experiences. So, you know, you get seeker-friendly churches, you get churches where the whole service is we want you to have a nice experience, and doesn't necessarily make disciples. Whereas uh, what God wants is a, a move of his spirit that brings people back to the word of God, believing the word of God, so that their lives become transformed into his likeness in the way that we've been talking. And, um, you know, he said to us that the key, I mean, there are many key elements, but the the most significant of them will be uh, that we will have his faith. Jesus' faith, not our faith in Jesus, but we will have the faith of Jesus, the kind of faith that Jesus had, Um, the kind of love that we've talked about this morning, that Jesus had, that we will love with the same love with which he's loved us, that we will have the holiness of Jesus in the church, and and all that that means, really living as a people that are set apart for him and for his will and for his purpose, not a people that are seeking their own um, identity or, or their own blessing, but really seeking to see the kingdom of God come and the will of God done on earth as, as in heaven. Uh, and that there will therefore be uh, a people of joy, not rolling around on the floor laughing, but a people of real joy, that they're rejoicing in the Lord always because they're living in the overcoming life and power of, of Jesus. So, um, you know, we're, we're just beginning to hear what God is saying about this. It's, it's like um, a question we had just now when you get the dreams and visions and things of what God is going to do. Okay, he's beginning to speak to us now about this is what he's preparing for, this is what he's building up for. Uh, certainly in, in our own nation and in Europe, that's what he's talking to us about specifically, but um, then he says it's going to impact the whole world, the m- movement of reformation like this, like the first reformation did. So, um, you know, you need reformation in America. <laughs> uh, because, you know, you can have, I mean, what is a Church you've got some big, big, big congregations in this country that aren't really churches, they're preaching stations where people just come and say oh what wonderful teaching, oh I love to hear this teaching, oh I'm so blessed by this teaching, but are they living as disciples? Are they living out the teaching? What ministry are those people that just come for the teaching? What ministries are they performing? What fruit are they bearing? Because that's a church, isn't it? Where every member of the church is active and is being fruitful in ministry. Right? Because the fivefold ministry is there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So it's all the saints that have been doing the work of ministry. Not just listening to some great teacher of the word. Every day I say to the Lord, Lord, I submit myself afresh to you today in spirit, soul, and body so that you can have your way with me today and you can work out in my life whatever it is that you want to do with me today. It's staying in that kind of submission where you're deliberately submitting everything in your spirit, soul, and body. So I say words, something like that. Oh, Oh, it's very simple to answer. It's very simple. In the Old Testament, God shows us what we deserve. In the New Testament, God shows us what he has done despite what we deserve. So you see the judgment of God being executed in all those ways in the Old Testament and then you see Jesus coming and taking our judgment upon himself so that now we can live with the revelation of God's kingdom life here on earth and not in the way that we deserve. So that's a brief answer to a big question, but, I mean, it's the only answer, really. So, and that's, that's why we've got the Old Testament as well as the New Testament in our Bibles. Uh, and, of course, in the Old Testament, there's all these wonderful, wonderful promises of how that time of judgment and of all that is in, included is going to come to an end and there's going to be a new creation a new life a new order a new covenant and then everything will be different in the way in which God relates to his people well yes but I mean there's a spiritual lesson in in all these things I mean what God was really saying to his people if if you want to take possession of the land in the way in which I want to give it to you then you have to annihilate all your enemies now if we want the will of God in our lives, then we have to annihilate everything that comes against the will of God in our lives. All the work of the enemy, you know. We have to take the shield of faith against all the fiery darts of the evil one. Um, <clears throat> and the, reason, the, re- well, the result, really, of, that you see in the lives of so many people, if not of all of us, is that we live with compromise that we still haven't annihilated everything that is of the flesh? See? If we did, then we would already manifest the life of Jesus perfectly. So there's a spiritual thing there. You, you have to kill off all the things of the enemy in order to see the fullness of God and his purposes and his promises fulfilled in our lives. In reality... We're working through that all the time. Uh, and, you know, God deals with us very, very gently, really, because He shows us an area of our life and say, okay, that's got to go, because it's inconsistent with my purpose for you, inconsistent with the life of my kingdom. So He deals with that area. And that's like annihilating the enemy from that part of our lives. And it's, it's all really the outworking of, of what you see, you know, um, because that has already been judged, that thing on the cross, that that part of our lives that, that uh, we can do without, right? God judged that. He put it to death. So God says, now you put it to death in your life. Then it won't be a hindrance and a plague to you anymore. And you will be freer to express the life of the Spirit and you will be transformed more into the likeness of Jesus. But, you know, there's always those things of self in all of us. eh? Every day, this is why Jesus says, every day you're going to have to deny yourself. Because every day you're confronted with, "Ah, that's just me. But the thing is, not to get too downcast by that, because it is just you. And you know what the enemy wants is for you to focus on yourself. What Jesus wants is for you to focus on him. So when all these things come you think, ah say, well that's just me. Praise God. I've been crucified with Christ, I'm a new creation. Lord I just focus on you now. Yeah, well his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Exactly. Right, okay. And Reason is the enemy of revelation. And most people, if you've got a scientific background, most people make reason their God rather than revelation. And uh, God has given us reasoning powers, but the proper use of the reason is to turn revelation into action. but not to exalt reason above revelation, if that helps. Uh, And, uh, you know, it isn't that we're not to be thinking beings. We have the mind of Christ. But um, we need those reasoning powers to say, okay, if God says this, what does that mean for me? How do I put that into practice in my life? That's the proper use of reason. But to exalt reason above the revelation of God's word is, is to say my thoughts are higher than God's thoughts. Yeah, the, You know, the, the, I think the best way to look at that is science, we, we welcome science because science shows us what a tremendous God of creation we have. So it enhances our faith. It doesn't destroy our faith. Uh, And um, so, you know, there are a lot of wonderful Christian scientists. You know, scientists that are Christians. Not Christian scientists, you understand (laughs) what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, (coughs) Yeah. Gifts are what is given. right? So we then, having received the gifts and All believers have all the gifts that that we need to understand. They have all the gifts available to them. But we can misuse the gifts in a soulish way because we have them rather than in a right way in submission to the Spirit. So um, you can hear someone in quotes prophesying, totally misusing the gift because they speak with judgment. And uh, if you look at the scripture in the New Testament, we're not Old Testament prophets speaking in judgment, but prophecy is given to encourage. So you know if somebody stands up and starts prophesying with a spirit of judgment that this is not the Holy Spirit and this person is not to be listened to. Uh, Where where there is prophecy that comes from God then it will come with a spirit of love it will come almost with a gentleness even though it may be a a word of correction because the Lord even disciplines in love he no longer disciplines in judgment. Because we have been saved from the judgment that we deserve, so you can see in situations like that, you know, a gift can be abused, a gift can be misused, and you'll usually find that people that misuse the gift of prophecy, for example, are people that will not hold themselves accountable to anybody else. They never prophesy out of a spirit of submission. Um, so. the exercise of of all of the gifts or of the life of the Spirit, really, within the body of Christ, these these gifts need to be manifested out of a a spirit of submission to the body. Um, You know, it's one thing to say, the Lord God is saying. It's another to say, I believe that God is saying to us. See, there's a spirit of submission there. And that can be weighed and tested and can be seen whether it really is the word of God or not, the voice of God or not. So it's always... Love is, is the determining factor, you see. Are the gifts being manifested in love? Because what Paul talks about in Corinthians is he doesn't say there's the way of love and the way of gifts says the most excellent way is the way of gifts in love so you know right if if this gift of whatever it is has been manifested in love then that's much more likely to be God than if that love is evidently not there yeah yeah that's a good question to finish with because uh, the, the element of repentance is so often what is lacking in uh among God's people. Uh, Repentance is literally a change of mind, isn't it? But what it really means is a total change of direction. You know, if, if I'm walking one way and I repent, I turn around and walk the opposite way. It isn't that I just, I'm sorry that I've walked this way. That's not repentance. I can get forgiveness for walking the wrong way, but forgiveness isn't repentance. Repentance is saying, right... That is the wrong way. Now I turn around and I'm going to walk in the right way. So, um, <clears throat> even when uh, things... Well, no, I'll come to in a minute. Uh, so, whenever we come to the Lord, it's always in a spirit of humility, but also a spirit of confidence. We are to approach him with confidence, with the assurance of faith, but we are approaching the Holy One. He is our Father who loves us, that gives us the confidence. He is the Holy One uh, who is Lord, and that shows us our need of the humility. So it's very important that if we want God to do something in our lives, we are not just turning to him for what we want from him but we're turning away from what has grieved him now that may not necessarily be the sickness but it can. there can be other things that grieve a person uh, that, that grieve the Lord that are happening in a person uh, perhaps the best thing for me to do is to give you to give you an example um a man came to me once, this is an absolutely true example, a man came to me once and uh, at the end of a meeting. I didn't know who he was because I was just visiting this particular area. And uh, he said that he had begun a business that God had really prospered because his motivation in beginning the business was to release finances into the work of the kingdom. And so... As God prospered the business, he'd been able to give considerable gifts financially into the work of the kingdom and everything was going well. But then in recent times, uh, you know, things had got difficult and the business had been in decline and he wasn't um, able to give the same uh, amounts of money for the work of the kingdom. So would I pray with him for God to restore the business? Okay, now that seems a pretty cut and dried thing. The easiest thing in the world would be for me to have said, okay, yeah, come on, let's agree together in prayer that God will prosper your business again. But I didn't do that because, uh, you see, a little bit of wisdom and experience teaches you, well, why is his business not prospering? If he's giving them up, there must be some reason for this. So as he was talking, I was—you know, teach our students, when people are talking to you about the situations, you've got one ear listening to what they're saying, the other ear listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying. So <clears throat> uh, I w- heard the, the Holy Spirit telling me he is in a wrong relationship. Now there was absolutely nothing that he said to indicate that, so I was listening to the voice of the Spirit. Um, <clears throat> so I said to him well perhaps there's some reason for your business not prospering that you haven't appreciated uh, are all your relationships good at present so I said oh yes they're fine so I said you, you, know, you don't have any problematic relationship so he said no no not at all and I was still listening to the spirit and he said he's in an adulterous relationship So, I said to to him, now, forgive me if I'm wrong, because you never want to judge and accuse someone, you see, accusations of the devil. So, I said, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Holy Spirit is saying that you're in a wrong relationship with another woman. See, immediately he broke down and began to weep. Because he'd got into this wrong relationship and didn't know how to get out of it. He'd made promises to this other woman and so on and boom, boom, boom. It always happens in these kind of circumstances. What the man did was to repent of the wrong relationship. Then we could pray for the success of his business that if I'd just prayed for the success of his business, he would have gone away without the real need in his life being met. And you see, this this is a good example to use because so often people uh, put their lives in compartments. Here is my need, and I need God to... Meet me in this need. And yeah, here is something else is going on in my life that is, but it's got nothing to do with this. But God doesn't see us as compartments. He sees us as people. And he might see a need in this area of our life, but he sees sin in that area of our life. So if we if we really want God to meet us and to meet the need, then it's, it's necessary to repent. But repent is not just turning away from the sin. Repentance is surrendering yourself to the purpose of God. Now, when, when I was a young pastor in 1970, my church in England had a, a, a tremendous revival, a real revival. and uh, I could talk for a long time about that. But the, the reason that that happened is that everybody was led to the Lord with real repentance. There was not no sort of casual acceptance of the Lord or anything like that. But turning away from all the sin in their lives and a, making a full wholehearted surrender of every part of their lives to God. Their life, their money, their future, their families, their relationships, their work life, everything was surrendered to the Lord that's repentance See? turning away and turning to and if anybody ever had a need I mean in revival people don't ask for counseling they ask for prayer you know because they're in the place of faith of believing the God but if, if ever they had a need uh, and it wasn't immediately being answered they would come to me and they wouldn't say <coughs> uh, you know I need some counseling they'd say, I need to make a fresh surrender of my life to the Lord. Because, you see, they understood the measure you give is the measure you get back. You reap what you sow. Okay, I need something new from God. I need to give myself afresh to him. So they saw what God did out of that repentance right at the beginning of their Christian life. And so it did something to them, they understood, okay, every time I need to receive from God, I need to surrender myself to God. And so they would come, not just to be prayed with for healing, and we saw plenty of that. I mean, in that move of God, for the first 15 months, every sick person we prayed for was healed. And the first problem we had was when we prayed for someone and they didn't get healed. Nobody could understand why they hadn't got healed. Why, how could we pray for someone and they didn't get healed? What we discovered was that that person needed repentance. That there was another secret area of his life, you know, where something was going on that wasn't pleasing the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> so... You know, we you can't con God, can you? <laughs> uh, he knows all, he sees all. Uh, and uh, so the, the great thing is that if we just do things according to God's word, then they'll work out. Fresh surrender, fresh repentance, turning away from whatever. It's amazing how, you know, when, when you have a need... And you get before God uh, how he uses the opportunity to do all kinds of stuff in you that you didn't even know needed doing. It's amazing. You know. uh, I'll, I'll just, just finish with giving you a bit of encouragement. There, there was a time when um, we, we wanted to by this uh, facility for our Bible college. it was we, we were just living as a community. We didn't have a church. We were living as a community, ministering to people, encouraging revival in the churches. And um, we needed to have this training facility. So we had absolutely no money, you know. And everybody had to put in bids for this property, and we put in a bid, and you had to say how you were going to Um, supply the money so we said cash because we paid cash for everything we didn't have any cash at all when we put the bid in (laughs) Um, (coughs) so you know everybody and our bid was accepted because we were the only ones that were offering cash (laughs) so (laughs) so everybody said oh this must be a real step of faith so I said no no we're not in place of faith yet because faith believes that you have received it now, believing that God was supplied is not the same as believing we have received it. So I went off to speak at a, in Singapore at a, a, a conference for people from all over Asia. And there was one afternoon when I didn't have any speaking to do, so I just got away with the Lord, shut myself away with the Lord in, in my hotel room. Now, I didn't pray for money because I, I knew right. now what I needed to do is to surrender to the Lord we need we need this large sum of money you see uh, So I just began to worship him and praise him and, and to surrender to him. Well that afternoon God showed me all kinds of things I just did not know and didn't see about myself that he wanted to deal with. He's just using that opportunity. They weren't anything very serious, but they were things that, you know, to God, were serious enough to, to want them out of my life. So I was repenting that. Then God just gave me this revelation of his glory, and he said to me, Colin, I'll give you a million dollars. I hadn't asked for any money. I hadn't prayed for the money. He knew the need. He said, I'll give you a million dollars. Not I will give you, I give you a million dollars. So I got off my knees and went (coughs) dancing around the hotel room, thanking God for my million dollars. (coughs) Four four, um, months later, we had the deadline, final deadline, for the money to be paid and for the contracts to be sealed for this property. The transference for property takes months in England. And uh, <clears throat> so we had all the money apart from the million dollars. We were a million dollars short. And I was off preaching in, uh, in Australia and I was phoning my wife and saying, has my million dollars arrived yet? <laughs> I said, no. And so I was stopping off in Singapore where God had given me the promise, you know, um, on the way home. And uh, there was a, a Christian businessman there who um, was going to drive me to the airport. I was speaking at a number of meetings. And he was going to drive me to the airport after those meetings. And I, <coughs> um, so I was going to meet with him at, at a hotel. And, but I was late because, um, you know, God was healing people and there was a lot of ministry going on. So I was in a real rush. <clears throat> and so he just sat me down with his plate of food. And during the plate of food he said, how's this project that you've got going for your Bible college? And I just said, well, you know, by, this was on the Sunday. So by next Friday we need the money. And he just turned to me and said, I'll, I'll see that my bank wires it to your bank so that you have it by Friday. That was the million dollars. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so, I mean, I knew he was a wealthy guy. And, and he said to me, you know, Colin, if you'd asked me for the money, I could have given it to you. But you never asked me. So I said, no, but you know we have this rule that we will never ask men for money and he said yes and to be honest with you that's the only reason why I'm giving it to you because I'm fed up with Christians asking me for money but I'm giving it to you because you never asked because you see our trust was in the Lord not in somebody that we knew had the finances but that's that's an example of you know how what what I did in that hotel room was just give myself to the Lord and say okay Lord if there's anything you want to do in me if there's anything I wasn't praying for the money I was just praying to meet with God. And I knew out of my meeting with God He would supply the money. So I could I, I went home, you know, after that prayer meeting the, the initial time and just said to everybody, you know, God has given me a million dollars. Nobody asked where was it because they understood the principles of faith. Okay, if Colin's got that word from God, that's it. The money's bound to come. And uh, You know, I sat on that jumbo jet all the way back from Singapore just rejoicing, praising God. I was sitting on a big fat check that he gave me because, he, you know, being a businessman, he said, I'm going to give you a check for sterling and then the the rest of it will come for the bank. I was just praising God, praising God for his faithfulness, not for the money. I was just praising God for his faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, you're so faithful when you say something you fulfill it, you do it. So, you know, every time I'm in the Bible school, I'm just thankful to the Lord for his goodness, for his faithfulness. But it's this principle, you know. You you reap what you sow. The measure you give is the measure you get back. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, but you give first. God never gave you his life till you gave him your life. He wanted to give you his life long before you gave him your life, but he never gave you his life till you gave him your life. And you see, that's the principle that needs to operate throughout our Christian life. You need something from God? Well, give yourself to him afresh. Surrender yourself afresh. You know, I say to people, God doesn't want to heal your disease. He wants to heal you from your disease. Mm -hmm. It's the person he wants to heal. So give the person to him. Surrender the soul to the spirit. It's all the same stuff. Shall we all pray? Yeah, let's stand and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Just as we pray, you know it says in the book of Revelation that the words that are written on Jesus in heaven are faithful and true. So Lord, we just thank you that you are faithful, you are the truth, and thank you that you are always faithful to the truth. Thank you for the way that you have been faithful to us, each one of us personally. That whenever we've given to you, you have always given far back more than we've given. You've always given us abundance. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in this church. That as people have given their lives to you, so you have blessed, so you have increased, so you have caused this church to develop and to grow. But Lord, we know that growth is not only to be in size, but also in the dynamic of what you do in the lives of your people. So I pray for this transforming work of your glory to take place in this church that more and more people will be transformed into your likeness with ever increasing glory that people here will live as disciples that this church will be a light shining in the darkness spiritual darkness all around that it will be a city set on a hill not just a building on a hill but a city set on a hill a shining light to many that are living in darkness thank you Lord that they will be drawn to the light that they will be drawn by the love in the lives of your people Lord, we think of all the people out there, they've got so much in terms of worldly possessions, but they need love, and they need acceptance, and they need to know your love and your acceptance. So we thank you, Lord, for what you have done, for what you're doing now, and also for what you're going to do. And we just pray that there will be that surrender of our lives to you spirit, soul and body so that you can truly have your way truly see the outworking of your will of your plan, of your purpose for your people in this place Lord we pray for Aaron we pray for all those in leadership with him we thank you Lord for giving them a double portion of your wisdom that that love and, and faith will always be expressed in grace with wisdom from you, knowing what it is that you are saying and wanting to do the way in which you're wanting to lead your people step by step in the way that you have purposed. So we give you all the glory, Lord, all the honor and the praise. And Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do in the lives of each one of my brothers and sisters here this morning in the light of what you have (coughs) spoken to them today. That as they take these words that they have listened to and process them in their hearts and lives so they will meet with you in a fresh way, have a greater revelation of your love for them and as they come to a fuller surrender of their lives to you, so they will know you meeting every need in their lives according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we bless you in his dear, wonderful name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God.